استغفر الله طيب يا اخوانا بلا والله العظيم يعني ما اعرف اقول لك شو لكن بلا انترو بلا عواليق على قول البيت بلا بلا العوالي امم وي هافنت بين هير ان ا فيري لونج تايم نو سير نو ميم يعني يحتضر <تصفيق> يحتضر الزمن ده كله هو مات هو مات دفننا <تصفيق> Uh, but we're back, unfortunately. Where wasn't the last time we were here for the for Alingila? Probably. Yeah, I think it was the last episode we did was to talk about Alingila, and now we're back to talk about Al Harib. <laughs> That's not funny. <laughs> It's not funny. I think there's gonna be. A lot of nervous clapping in this episode yeah, because I, yeah. we may or may not be losing our minds, but it's gonna be fine. Shalom. Please don't take any laughter you hear seriously. It's the only, it's the only response I can come up with for what's going on right now that isn't a kasir ayha yo Right. But yeah, uh, I don't even remember what our intro was like. Hi, to I'm Sarah, Hi. and I'm Sarah. Yeah. Also. And uh, this is no sir, no ma'am. <clears throat> a once upon a time podcast where we used to drag our timelines for being trash, and now, ah, uh, now. Many tested. Yes, <laughs> it's all we do right now. Yes. Um. We haven't been here in a while, but not a lot has changed. Uh, we still have the tendency to ramble. So we are going to try to keep this brief and somewhat <laughs> structured. Um, I have my little notebook. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't, I don't make questions. any promises. <laughs> Nine, we have nine questions, well, eight questions, and then um, a yes, sir, yes, ma'am. So we can hopefully get through them without losing the plot too much. Inshallah. Inshallah. Right. Allegorical. Right. First question What is happening in Sudan? Wait, before before the, we get into the questions, um, obviously, <laughs> this episode is for the diaspora because people in Sudan don't have uh, internet or phone networks uh, or, or the bandwidth. To, to listen to this their, or that <laughs> like they don't need to listen to this at all no, not at all right diaspora um keep it within your own circles nobody nobody else needs it thank you um like i said question one what is happening in sudan Well, um, I'm going to go back a little bit just so in case anybody who is listening to this who has no idea what's going on and needs like 
a crash course. Proper context. Yeah, mm-hmm. to 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 understand what's going on now. Because also realize that people, I mean, we're all talking about this because we all have the background and we're screaming at the world like, look at this, this is different. I know how to know, but people are not really paying attention. And a lot of people mm-hmm. who are not paying attention are not paying attention because they don't understand the context. They don't get why this is a big mm-hmm. deal. They don't get why this happened in the first place. They don't understand anything about Sudan. They didn't know there was a revolution. Like, I feel like we all live in this bubble where we think that everybody knows about the Sudanese revolution of 2019. And so, of course, they would understand that, like, at least they would know that to now understand the importance of what's happening right. now. But they don't even know that. So I'm going to go back there. All in right. 2019, <clears throat> uh, Sudanese people came out in a nonviolent revolution that overthrew uh, a 30-year dictator. And after that, there was a period of negotiations after which even though the people were demanding full civilian rule, which means no involvement of the military in the government process, or the governing process rather, the negotiations led to a transitional period, which is just a period between revolution and elections, in which there was a shared quote-unquote government between civilian leaders and military leaders. And that eventually fell apart um, because of a military coup in 2021. So then the military completely took over from 2021 until today. Now, the people who took over from the military were Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, who is a general and uh, general commander of the Sudanese armed forces. And his vice president, quote unquote, at the time, Mohamed Hamdan Dagalu, also known as Himeti, who is the leader and general commander of the Rapid Support Forces. What are the Rapid Support Forces, Sarah? The Rapid Support Forces are a paramilitary group. What does that mean? It just means an extension of the Sudanese Armed Forces that was once upon a time a group of mercenaries that were uh, recruited by the previous dictator that we overthrew in 2019 to uh, commit crimes in different areas around Sudan, most prominently in Darfur. Everybody knows about the Darfur conflict. They were heavily involved in the Darfur conflict. Both of these generals, by the way, were heavily involved in the Darfur conflict, after which uh, this Himeti was uh, rewarded by the previous regime for his crimes in Darfur with uh, uh, promotion, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. payment. Exactly. Yeah. And his mercenaries went from being just regular mercenaries to an official paramilitary force now known as the Rapid Support Forces. They used to be called the Gengewit. People still call them that because that's what they are as far as we're concerned, which is the devil on horseback. Um, So fast back forward to 2021 and these two generals who um, were in cahoots and were quote unquote de facto leaders of the country over the next couple of years to 2023, um, their their, what is it called? 
the divide between them increased. They are both vying for the same position, which is president of Sudan. Um, and so over the last two years, they've been doing their own dealings and essentially operating as presidents in their own uh, capacities, uh, like on separate ends of whatever. Some people, you know, uh, you have Hemeti on one side who's meeting with, I guess, the UAE and whatever. And then you have Burhan who meets with Egypt and other powers. And they're both basically uh, operating separately, but acting like presidents. And so now we're at a point where uh, the the throne doesn't hold two butts. <laughs> and now they're trying to duke <laughs> it out for which butt gets to sit on the throne, which is a throne sitting on a dumpster fire as far as we're concerned, because the country has completely collapsed since the coup. Because in 2021, when the military took over in this coup, um, all the gains that people made during the revolution in terms of reintroducing Sudan to the international community, to the global community, of getting funding, getting new opportunities, getting um, all sorts of, uh, um, what is it, what's the word I'm trying to say, improvements or developments or gains um, because of this, you know, people saw Sudan moving towards a democratic state. All of that was erased on October uh, 25th, 2021, when the military stages coup. So since then, funding is gone. All the gains that we made were repossessed by the various mm -hmm. world powers that had given them. Uh, and Sudan started to spiral into oblivion. Now let's get to April 15th. April 15th, 2023, these idiots decide Let's 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 actually fight a war against each other to to see who gets to be president. And it started in Khartoum. It quickly spread to uh, other cities in Sudan: Al Ubaid, Niala, Al Fashir, Aginena, Da'an, Zalingi. All of these cities across Darfur, because Darfur is never spared, is never spared right. from the the devastation and destruction that the Sudanese state. Um, you know, wields or whatever commits against his people. So that's where we are for the last 27 days now, since April 15th. It has been uh, an all-out war with clashes between the two factions, the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces. The Sudanese Armed Forces are using jet, jet fighters, <laughs> fighter jets, mm -hmm. whatever you call them, are, are bombing... Um, bombing cities they're they're bombing the city of Khartoum uh you know practicing urban warfare across not just Khartoum but like I said all of these other cities that we've talked about and now uh it's sort of calmed down in other places but it's still raging in the capital why is this special it's special and different because the capital uh as Alex DeWall's um article states has not been raised has not been attacked in any way since 1885, I think, or something like some mm -hmm. some crazy uh, um, date like that. And so, uh, you know, we're used to seeing, unfortunately, a war and destruction happen in other places in Sudan where it can be hidden. But this is the first time in our modern history that uh, people are seeing war and experiencing war in Khartoum itself. 
And over the last 27 days, like I said, they've used every everything they possibly can to decimate the city. Um, the rapid support forces are using neighborhoods to shelter, to hide, to whatever, to using people as human shields, essentially. And the Sudanese military doesn't give a shit and is um, bombing people from the air anyway right. in hopes that they might but hit some rapid support forces while they do that. Also, just for context, because I think this is really hard to imagine for anyone who's <laughs> never been in Khartoum, um, but the um, uh, Sudanese Armed Forces headquarters uh, the airport, um, a few other key military buildings are literally in the middle of residential areas. Like Khartoum Airport is in the center <laughs> of Khartoum. Yeah. I don't know if people realize, but it's like, <clears throat> but it's not just that. Not, yeah. not it's not just. It's not just those buildings. those key. It's it's the fact that over the last. <clears throat> Over the last, I'll say, 15 years at least, um, the Sudanese government, which which was a military government, right, under under Bashir, um, put all of its military assets, its military um, bases in the middle of, like Sada said, in the middle of these residential areas, in the middle of cities. It's not just the office buildings. It's bases themselves. And then with the the rise of the rapid support forces and after the revolution they were they too were able to like create their own bases inside of al khartoum and so yeah yeah so I, you were, I remember going back to sudan in june of 2019 so right after yeah and i remember being Many Jinjaweed just like hanging out and camping in the streets of Khartoum was a really surreal experience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you said, but it's also not, their access, their their like the the money that um, that Hemeti has been able to gain and funnel into growing his force has also allowed him to take control. I mean, maybe not take control, but basically have presence of the RSF in very affluent neighborhoods of Al-Khartoum, like very central And it was very intentional. Oh, absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. And during the revolution, I mean, is when they started, I think, uh, taking over these places. And they had, you know, these PR campaigns where they would like clean up the neighborhood and do things for people. And they have all sorts of like charitable work that they do yeah. to sort of whitewash and cleanse their image. But I mean, that's neither here nor there. The point is that the military slash the government was dumb enough to put its bases in the middle of a city in residential mm -hmm. areas. And so now that the, this fighting is happening, it's happening over people's heads, right? It's happening over yeah. civilians' heads. It's claiming um civilian lives because these idiots are fighting in the middle of a city they're not fight duking it out in the middle of nowhere they're using the city and its people as shields against each other while they duke it out uh right. i think as of the stats i saw yesterday uh since april 15th over almost 600 lives have been taking uh, taken and this is a like really 
low estimate that's based on just the people coming into the hospitals, right? People dying mm -hmm. at the hospitals, which is not by far not the not the majority of of you know of the deaths that are happening. But anyway, mm -hmm. almost 600 lives taken, uh, uh, over 5,000 injured, um, 700,000 people displaced within Sudan, and 150,000 at least who have left the country in the last 27 days. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's wild what's going on. It's 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 really it's insane. It's insane what's happening. It's insane. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't. I, I feel like I don't know what else to say. Um, I mean, I don't know if we need to say it, but Khartoum is really a capital. I want to say on the verge of collapse, but probably way beyond collapse because yeah. um, there has been a shortage of cash, of fuel, of food. Although I think. Some markets have reopened recently. Um, some neighborhoods um, have not had running water or electricity for three, four, five days. Some others have not had any since the beginning of the fighting. Yeah. Um, the phone networks are not working, um, which is really problematic because a lot of people rely on um what do you call them the like howja groups oh yeah the needs groups well i mean i think i think we have to talk about in order to further contextualize that we need to talk about how people uh, i mean what's happened to people in the aftermath and how people are organizing uh to to help in in that aftermath, right? So like like Sada said, you know, there's no electricity, there's no running water, phone networks are down, internet is down or severely compromised. Uh, safety obviously is a huge issue. The healthcare system is collapsed. I mean, there's nothing, no, I mean, there's no other way to put it. I think the stat was 80% of hospitals are not functional. They're not working. I mean, 80% of hospitals in Khartoum are not working. Uh, and and not to mention that as if to say that in other places they're, you know, at full capacity because in other affected areas, like across Darfur, uh, and particularly in Aguinena where the violence has been um, especially devastating and has now like gained this tribal element to it, which we'll get into in a little bit. But the one hospital, the one functioning hospital in a Guinea city is closed and has been since uh, April 24th, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even before this war, the healthcare system was teetering, right? Uh, we, Because of, like I said, all of the gains that we lost from this coup, um, all of the support to the healthcare system that we were getting uh all the funding stripped. And so you have a shortage of medicine, you have a shortage of supplies, you have a shortage of equipment. Um, and now with this war, obviously that shortage is getting even worse. And you have the added stress of obviously huge demand for uh, health services because 
it's a war and people are being injured and you also have people with chronic illness and you have people who are just regular regular sick and then you have the th direct threat towards doctors that is uh, making it difficult for them to even get to hospitals you, and making it difficult for them to survive because they're being targeted by these forces who I don't I don't even get what the issue is. I don't I don't get what the problem is. I don't get why in the middle of all this, they are specifically targeting doctors. I don't understand that point. I, I've been trying to figure it out and I just don't get it. Like the Sudanese armed forces accused doctors of siding with the RSF. The RSF accused doctors of not treating their wounded. Um, and so as a result, now doctors are in a place where they have to hide their profession because if they're caught at a checkpoint and they're identified as a doctor, they're arrested or, or worse. Um, so anyway, so on, on the healthcare front, it's a disaster, right? Um, and then you know, so in this, within this situation, people have uh, come together, people both inside Sudan and outside have come together and formed these uh, emergency task forces, um, have created hashtags for specific needs. So if you are in need of an ambulance, if you are in need of a specific medicine, if you are in need of a doctor or a hospital that has a functioning um, operating room, or if you are in need of transportation, if you are in need of, of a bus to take you outside of the outside of the city or outside of the country because people are fleeing uh, this war, then you communicate that need through these uh, task forces or through these um, hashtags. And the issue with not having internet is that, or not having a phone network is that it cuts people off, right? It cuts off communication. So you can't even get to express that need and hope that somebody somewhere else can help you. Um, you know, you're, you're essentially further trapped in your, in your situation by the lack of telecommunications. Not to mention the fact that people wanna get in touch with their family from abroad. They want to make sure that their family is okay. They want to be able to um, arrange travel for them to escape. And that can't happen if they can't get in touch with them. And, and also, I think it's also worth mentioning that these two warring factions, the RSF at least, I'll say the RSF at least because that's what's been proven, don't want these things to be fixed they don't want electricity to be fixed. They don't want telecoms to be fixed. They don't want uh, water plants to be fixed because they have snipers outside of these places that will shoot anybody or they'll arrest people off the street who are trying to get to these places to fix these things. So even the citizens who are trying to do for themselves what the absence of a government and state won't do for them can't do it because they're literally standing in their way. I feel like more than anything, this is a war against Sudanese citizens. It's a war between two guys who want to rule, but they also want to rule with an iron fist. They don't want to rule democratically. They're not fighting with each other, despite what they both say for the preservation of democracy or the preservation of the gains of the revolution. They want to rule without being questioned. And everything their forces are doing, to me, shows that. When you bomb people from the air, it's like, really naive to think otherwise. 
Well, it, it is. It is really naive to think otherwise, but I think... Because no one ever started a war to then to give be power to right. a democratic transition government. Like, what is the point? Which is, which is why, I mean, over the last four years, Sudanese people have been saying this, right? The international community swooped in at the end of 2019 and decided that they... Uh, you know, wanted to, quote unquote, support Sudan's democratic transition. And they thought doing this, they thought that they would be able to do this by, by like slinging these uh, um, platitudes about civilian-led government. Instead of mm-hmm. it being a purely civilian government, they were talking about civilian-led and they were uh, encouraging further negotiation and further partnership between the civilian uh, political leadership and the military, even though Sudanese people have said from jump, not even from 2019 or 2018, from way before that, that that we were tired of military governance, that we didn't want that anymore. And people didn't listen. And we told them that they're not to be trusted, that there have been how many coups in Sudan's history since independence, like some wild number. Oh, yeah. Like 15? An entire Wikipedia page. Yeah. I think it was three and like 13 attempts or something. Right. Three successful military coups and 13. No, more. More than three. Because there's 58, 64... 85, 89. I'm going to look it up right now because it's something wild. It's some wild number. Yeah. Yeah. Military coups in Sudan. It is an actual factual Wikipedia page. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. Starting in mm-hmm. 1958. This is mm. not uh this is not accurate. Hold on. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. What? There's a an infographic somewhere. I know I've seen it. Here we go. BBC. Here we go. One, two, three, four, five, six. Seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Yeah, twelve coups. I believe three or four of them successful. So we have a long history, is what I'm trying to say. Of we have a long track record with the military. We know, we know, we know, we know how this ends, and yet folks played in our faces. And, you know, and unfortunately, their support, their indirect or direct legitimizing of these military uh, powers involvement in government led us to where we are today. Partially, because people want to be like, oh, well, well, they're also responsible. I mean, you can't put everything on the international community. We're not. We're not. But when the international community is like funding and uh, providing weapons 
to these people and meeting with them and making deals with them, they have to claim their own part in what's happening. And also very actively telling civilians that they have to accept these military and paramilitary as legitimate leaders. Lest we forget so, that we were told a full civilian government is unrealistic, quote, mm-hmm. and that we should be reasonable with our demands, as if any of the countries telling us that have military governments themselves. For it to be reasonable or realistic. How come it's realistic for you, but for us, no. I, you know, I, I just... I think anyway. the, the apathy comes from our history. Like you said, they look at Sudan's history and they're like, oh, you know, nah, right. it's, it's what they're used to. Of course they need a military government. They're not ready for a democracy. Right. Right. So, so here we are. So here we are. So here we are, um, you know, in this completely uh, devastating situation with these same international powers now saying we should have heeded the warnings. We should have listened in writing their think pieces uh, across the media with their lukewarm apologies about not listening and jumping the gun or being too hasty or too hopeful. That was the thing. We were too hopeful for, for a democratic transition in Sudan. We just We just didn't see it. You didn't? That's, that's, anyway, that's neither here nor there at this point. Right. Um, so that's where we are in terms of, of uh, I mean, that's just a glimpse into the difficulties that people are facing um, in Sudan right now, trying to survive this war that doesn't seem to want to end. And it doesn't want to end because the people who started it don't want it to. They are, in fact, now engaged in negotiations in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, that we've been told over the last two days are, quote, close to being uh, completed. An agreement is close to being signed. But the agreement that is close to being signed (laughs) is for a temporary ceasefire just to allow humanitarian aid to come in. Pause. Let's move, let's go back a little bit and talk about this humanitarian <laughs> aid. Because I, I, mm-hmm. I, I, we've forgotten all of this, right? I mean, we talked about the ways the Sudanese people are helping each other, um, that folks are literally carrying each other through this. Uh, and we're doing that uh, partially because nobody else is coming to save us. Unlike um, in other situations, Sudan has found itself uh, really alone in this war um, with humanitarian organizations like the UN, uh, various UN organizations and others immediately escaping the moment the war started, (laughs) which is hilarious to me because some of these agencies, like that's, that's their job. It's their job to work in like conflict zones and difficult areas. It's literally their job. Like that's mm-hmm. why they were created. And so mm-hmm. to see them immediately sh- shut down, like close up shop and leave when the war started was bizarre, but also hilarious. Like I just, I laughed because <laughs> what? 
<laughs> Wait, you're you're supposed to be here. I think the only organization that stayed and has not left is Doctors Without Borders. They're the only mm-hmm. ones who stayed. Everybody else left. All the embassies, all the UN agencies, everybody else just immediately shut down and left, leaving, by the way, their their local employees to suffer the consequences. Yeah, well, sorry, gotta go, bye. <laughs> bye. Honestly, not Good even just that. the local ones. Do you know one of my mom's neighbors was an American citizen who worked for USAID? And to go to Shtagalbea, they <laughs> she had to evacuate with the other neighbors. Yeah. Oh, oh my she God. Left I... Eventually, with like another other evacuation, yeah. but nobody, like, nobody cared. That's actually true. I've read several, but I mean, the one, the, the testimonies I've read were from people from like foreign nationals who, who were not necessarily there with an agency, but mm-hmm. were there working in Sudan. And they were like, Sudanese people helped us escape. Uh, Sudanese people helped us evacuate. Resistance wow. committees helped us evacuate yeah. because our own governments would not send us people to come yeah. evacuate us. Um, I thought we were going to get into that later, but since you mentioned that, can we please talk about the audacity of some embassies who contacted the resistance committees, um, especially of Al Khartoum Wahid Witnin, because that's where a lot of the foreigners live. And that's um, where and violence them, was most intense yeah, in the and that was days. Yeah. Right. It was basically ground zero the first couple of days. Mm-hmm. Um, so they contacted the resistance committees and asked um, if they could help evacuate their nationals. And I just cannot um, Just to understand. give you a little context for those of you who didn't know nothing. The resistance committees are essentially neighborhood committees formed uh, pre, pri- just prior to, uh, prior to or during the revolution that supported their communities and also organized protests. They organized basically the popular movement during the revolution. They are the non-political uh, arm of the revolution, if I can say that. Eventually, these resistance committees further organized uh, themselves into coalitions um, uh, based on city or state. And they came together, they formulated a political charter to help move Sudan into this new era of democracy and you know, rewrite the constitution and all of this. But essentially, at their core, they are neighborhood committees that serve their communities. They are regular Basically. civilians. They're just regular people. They're youth, they're older people, they're doctors, they're lawyers, they're uh, electricians, plumbers, students, whatever. They are just regular, regular people. And so when this war started... Who volunteer their time and effort to help their community. Who are not paid and don't have budgets. They don't have vehicles. They don't have assets. They just have what they have personally that they use in a volunteer capacity to help their community. When the war started, obviously, 
they continued to help their community by transporting uh, sick and injured, by help, you know, treating if you are if their doctors treating them, by uh, speaking to the media and talking about what's happening in Sudan, um, providing food uh, and other kinds of aid to people who needed them in their communities, and then <laughs> also evacuating people from, you know, of their community from these dangerous areas. Like Sada said, especially the district of Khartoum 1 and 2 was where the violence was especially um, concentrated the first few days and maybe the first week, particularly of the conflict, or maybe more than that. I mean, even now it's still a dangerous zone, but the violence was very, very bad there. And uh, so the Khartoum 1 and 2 resistance committees were evacuating uh, folks from their community. And because lots of foreigners live in those areas, they were also evacuating the foreigners, but they were also actively telling their embassies, hey guys, come get your people. They were telling the agencies, hey guys, come get your people because it's very dangerous out here. And we are not, they're not driving armored trucks. They're not armed. They don't have bulletproof vests or whatever. They're and I, I believe they had contacted people. the ICRC um for some help to find safe passages and they basically said we cannot enter that zone yep. you're on your own yep and not just that not just the embassies of in the, the who had people in those communities but embassies and agencies who had people in different parts of Khartoum were mm -hmm. calling Khartoum 1 and 2 resistance committees and telling them hey guys can you come evacuate our people please what these are civilians. As, Again. as if they weren't civilians fighting for their own lives and losing their own people. Civilians. Wild, wild. It is wild to me that embassies with budget and functioning government and military aid and planes that they could send. Military attaches and guards that <laughs> work in these embassies. All and the gumption to contact neighborhood like civilians to ask them to evacuate their people. I thought that was really rich. It's insane. Truly. It's insane. Um, it's, it, I mean, some of the stuff that's happened over the last 27 days is really hard to believe. I think, I mean, again, it, it just reaffirms this idea that like as Africans, we're used to war and strife. So this must be normal for us. That's the only explanation I can find for, for an embassy fixing its mouth to say, to ask regular civilians to come evacuate their people from a war zone. The only explanation is, hey, this is regular life for you. And honestly, even when they organized actual evacuations for their um, citizens, it that was an entire mess but i guess we'll get into that a bit later it, yes i mean we can get into it now i mean we can get into it right now <laughs> while we're on it the evacuation process was such a it was such a mess it was such a it was a mess for two reasons i think one i don't know people weren't prepared I feel like there are protocols that like every embassy in anywhere in the world 
has. Who wasn't prepared though? Because I believe Japan and Korea were pretty damn well prepared. Oh, that's true. That's true. I I stand corrected. I remember <laughs> that. I mean, they were quick with it. I think they were the first. Yeah. They might have been yeah. the first. Korea might have been the first, or Japan. Sorry, Japan might have been the first to. I think Japan was people. the first. Yeah. Um, the I believe the. Because the fighting started on a Saturday, which yeah. was 15. April 15th, and yeah. they had an emergency meeting the same day. And I think either the next day or Monday max, they had sent yeah. a military plane and got their people out. That's true. I think countries that care about their citizens were, were quick to move Must ahead. Must be nice. Were prepared. Must, Must be nice. Be nice. Uh, Western powers really dropped the ball. Um on uh, on evacuating their people and particularly dual citizens, Sudanese uh, hyphenates. Those people mm-hmm. were really uh, shown just how much they are considered part of those uh, part of those countries. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I mean, I mean, even it's just it's it's so complicated. It's so complicated. First of all, can we just point the fact that. Korea and Japan got everyone out the second that they could land their military plane, while other countries like the U.S., Canada, the U.K., uh, France as well, I believe, evacuated their diplomats. Oh, um, yes. First. First First. and foremost, yeah. Then worried about the rest. (laughs) And then, well, much later, worried about the rest. Yeah. Yeah. That is a fact. Um, there was also, of course, the added complication of people who, uh, have family members, immediate family members who are not of those, uh, nationalities, for example. I mean, this is especially true for the UK. I've seen this being discussed heavily in, in context, in the, in terms of like UK citizenship, lots of Mm -hmm. people who, for example, uh, have spouses who are, um, UK citizens uh, or children who are UK citizens who were told after making it through a war zone to the evacuation uh, location, because obviously, like, like the Americans told people, bring your own food. <laughs> hey, guys, we'll evacuate <laughs> you, but you got to make it here. You got to bring your own food and water with you because sorry, <laughs> that was a real well, thing that was in the email. Um, <laughs> not not surprised. Because at one at point, the Americans were basically like, hmm, how about we just pick you up in Jeddah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> figure I mean, your way out the, there. Yeah, figure your way to Jeddah and we'll totally, we'll totally get you home from there. From there. No worries. <laughs> uh, and I also discovered that to be evacuated, you have to pay. Sorry, what? No? Yeah, you have to pay. It's not free <laughs> to get evacuated out if, of a war. Wait, 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 no, 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 wait. Is this? exclusively for americans or everyone i think i know americans, americans have to pay for everything americans have to pay for everything but i, I think americans are not the only ones to make their i think the canadians have to pay too it's thousands of dollars the, the, the canadians didn't even send a plane like the canadians no, left on the german plane on other planes yeah <laughs> they're like hey guys can we get a well ride? i know the canadians who left on the german plane and i, no. I don't know if they paid i'll ask I don't know, but I know for a fact that Americans, I know that for a fact because I know Canadians have been talking about the fact that they're being made to pay for their evacuation. I could 
that could be hearsay, but I know for more than a fact that Americans are made to pay. Imagine escaping a war zone and then they're giving you a bill for like $3,000. Hey, that hi. Is wild. <laughs> hi, I'm dead. I'm just, I'm, the, the, the lengths to which uh, America, the American government can be heartless, mind-blowing, mind-blowing. <laughs> Um, yeah, but like I was saying, I mean, especially for places like the UK, where there are, I mean, there's a huge Sudanese hyphenate community, Sudanese British community there. And lots of people have parents or have uh, spouses uh, um, who are who are non British, right, who are who are purely Sudanese who don't have dual citizenship. And those people once they arrived at the evacuation location, we're told, uh, sorry, we can only take you. We can't take your family, can't take your ch- your kids. We can't take your spouse. Uh, there's one story of, of a man who has British citizenship whose wife was not a citizen and pregnant. And they told him, hey, sorry, uh, you can come, but <laughs> your pregnant wife has to stay. And that's just, Terrible. you know, I mean, I think... Uh, the 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 conspiracy theorist in me says that or believes that that was done on purpose, right? Things like that. When you tell somebody you can't bring your kids, we'll evacuate you, but you can't bring your kids or you can't bring your pregnant wife is only said because you know that person is going to say no. Because you know that person is not going to leave their children or their spouse behind. Right. Right. It's a loophole. And I don't know if you saw this um, petition, but I saw that um, Sudanese people in the UK are advocating um, to get like a, what do they call a family scheme? Yeah. Regroupment yeah. visa thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe the Canadians which are doing is, that too. Is it for immediate family or for extended family? Because it's the thing in the UK family. is um when the war broke out in ukraine mm-hmm. um the family scheme for ukrainians included all of the extended family literally so your spouse and children but also your parents your grandparents your aunts your aunties um in-laws your cousins your in-laws um and so i believe people in the UK are trying to um, push for the same thing for Sudanese people. Well, I mean, that's the thing, Will right? Will it like, happen? No, it won't. <laughs> it won't because <laughs> they don't care. I mean, racism? right. Because racism and white supremacy and anti-blackness worldwide. <laughs> I, I, I mean, we've, we've talked about this a lot and I, unfortunately the world uh, seems to, misinterpret our point whether deliberately or uh or not but mm-hmm. they've we've been talking about like we just want the same um uh permissions the same sympathy empathy the same mobilization that folks uh, you know did for ukraine right i don't think that's yeah. That if you can do it for one, you can do it for the other, right? This mm-hmm. is this, this is 
a similar situation. People are fleeing war and they have family members there. And I, I mean, they have family members in these countries who can, who are not, you know, they're not asking for full support. These people, most of the people who are leaving already have people in those places who will take them in, right? Who are going to provide for them. I don't think that's a thing that anybody is contesting. But it just mm -hmm. seems like it's so unbelievable to do it for a place like Sudan, but, but also so organic and so natural and such a reflex to do it for people of Ukraine. And this has nothing to do with the people of Ukraine. Our argument about wanting the same treatment, wanting the same help, it has nothing to do with Ukraine in specific. It just has to do with the fact that we saw it happen for other people, which means that it can happen right. for us. Right. Um, and that's not unreasonable. It's not wild. It's not out of the realm of possibility. It just requires the, those governments' willingness to, right. to, to do the same. And they're not willing. They're not willing. Yeah. Because it's exactly what we were saying before we started recording this podcast. But the fact that Ukrainian people also have the right to bring their pets into the countries they were relocating to, that is absolutely what should happen when you're fleeing a war. Like right. you should be able to um, be with your family and all of your loved ones and your pets. Um, I'm just saying, just, just, just a, a little, little bit. bit of empathy, a little bit. I feel like the way that the world was moved uh, about the, the Ukrainian conflict was so powerful. And so mm -hmm. nice to see humanity like unite in that way for people who are in pain. Right. <laughs> that it's really, it's, it's really hurtful to see exactly. the polar opposite of that happen in the Sudanese right. context. And let's right. not even go far, right? Let's, even if we, you know, let's not go as far as to have people evacuate to the UK or Canada or the US or wherever, okay? Those places are far. Even when we see the response of our neighbors, of Sudan's right. neighbors in response to this conflict, the fact that at the Egyptian border where hundreds of thousands of people have fled to, uh, the fact that folks are being treated like tourists, that visas mm -hmm. are still being um, processed instead of it being a situation where these are people seeking asylum. They're literally asylum seekers. And they're being treated like tourists and being paid, made to pay fees, made to pr produce documents, documents they may not even have because a literal war broke out and they ran out mm -hmm. in the middle of the night or whatever with nothing but a couple of uh, of changes of clothes in a bag like you're expecting people to have cash right. to have money on hand to have documents on mm -hmm. hand and also to wait for days or weeks at a time to have their stuff processed in a place that we, is literally young men between the age of 18 and 50 are currently waiting in Halfa. it's been weeks yeah yeah i think there's about more than 6,000 people at this point just waiting 
for their visas to be processed in the middle of a war. And the fact that that they're also waiting in the desert. (laughs) They're waiting in the desert. Like the people who reach these, you know, the areas in which these uh, border crossings are, are not exactly equipped to handle this many people. Folks are sleeping on the ground. They're renting beds or they're they're just sleeping on cardboard boxes or whatever like it's dire straits and there's nothing there there's no humanitarian aid there are no organizations working there are just volunteers that's why i saw this debate on twitter um when people first started leaving saying um oh, you know, they're calling all these people refugees, but like they're leaving with their own money and their passports and their visas and whatever. And then someone else was like, oh, but they are refugees, literally, because they are fleeing a war. Hello. And my point is, I don't know if we can call them refugees, not because of this like classes. I mean, they're not being treated as refugees right. at the border. They're not receiving any help. Um the the process to cross the border is not being expedited for any it's just they're not really being treated as refugees so which one is it i think that's my issue with this with this discussion yasara the fact that like you said there is like this classist element to things and and pause i'm about to go on a tangent so please bring me back <laughs> i'm about to go on a tangent the fact that First of all, people have a very big problem with the word refugee or displaced person. It's like you insulted them. It's a classist thing. Like, oh right? my God, refugees, because they're traveling with their own money. That's not what it means. That's not the point. That's not the point. And you know, um, does, just because you're a refugee doesn't mean you don't have money. It's stupid. It's all stupid. Exactly. There's right? No, like, like, it's all stupid. Correlation. I don't understand, but okay. I, I I like this is a thing that I've I've been wanting to address this idea that like there's shame in being a refugee or there's shame in being displaced. This right. these are things that happen outside of your control. You yeah. don't do this to yourself. Somebody does this to you. Right? So to say that people are that people should be ashamed or they are labeling them refugees or, or displaced people is somehow lessening their value is stupid. Unfortunately, in the world, there is that concept, right? There is that idea that like you are less mm-hmm. than for being in this situation, but it's, it's dumb. And I want to say that for the record. The other thing Agreed. I want to say is unfortunately the people who are fleeing, uh, oh, sorry, the people who have an issue with these terms are also people who many times don't recognize the fact that Sudanese have been refugees and been displaced for decades throughout Mm -hmm. our history. So many people have left this country as refugees. So many people have left this country as displaced people or or left their homes as displaced people. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think now that it's happening in the capital uh, and and to a specific subset of 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 folks like they're having a hard time um right but that's just their own um lack of historical education because yeah i I don't think i think it's a lot of people in like the 60s 70s 80s and 90s um 
literally had to leave Sudan for their physical safety. So they're technically political refugees because they had to leave because of their political convictions. And there's so many of them. But I think that rings different to people than a refugee who's leaving because their area is war-torn. Again, it's that classist thing of like, you're special. That's That's different because you were forced out of your country for your intellectual whatever. Like, I it's right but that but that's my issue i think we need to stop uh we need to at least make a concerned effort to realize the power of our words when we say Khartoum specifically, as many people have pointed out, was a quote-unquote safe haven for so many displaced people from within Sudan mm-hmm. and so many refugees from outside of Sudan. So well, by then, I knew. What, what's, I, I really having trouble understanding the stigma with being a war refugee specifically because also in Sudan, we have people who were internally displaced for other reasons, like right. the dam, you know? Right. They're all, di- like, they've been, di- displaced. been displaced. Yeah. But we don't, consi- I don't know why we don't the- consider them that. I think we, I think in our minds, with a specific um, part of the country or specific people within Sudan, right? Specific peoples mm-hmm. within Sudan. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, there's, you know, this central uh, Sudan mindset of that's never going to happen to me. Yeah. And now that it's happening, it's so unbelievable. But the, the, the rhetoric and the discussion around it is so offensive. It's so offensive to all the people who have left Sudan specifically because of war. To all the people who have have been displaced from their homes, specifically because of Amail al Ayesha Sudani, or or Damasadir, right? Um, so there, that's that's one thing. The other thing is um, what what bothers me also about about this displacement and refugee situation is that like the this money aspect. This thing of let's mm-hmm. not talk about them as refugees because they're coming with their with their own money. That to me, Bordeaux mm-hmm. deserves its own discussion of like, first of all, those two things don't necessarily Which is what I'm saying. Each other out. Right. They yeah, don't necessarily cancel each other out. Yeah. Alien related. Or guide fee camp. Yeah. It's just there's some dissonance. There's yeah, there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect there that uh, that I think, like you said, also has has to do with with classism a lot <laughs> of like, oh, I'm not like that. I'm coming with my own money. I'm not like that. But it's like, what what is the like that you think you are like, or, or the thing that you're trying to distance yourself from? What what is that? What is the image that you're trying to distance yourself from? I'm also just disappointed in 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 again like these humanitarian organizations that have not moved in. Like, I don't understand how things work in the humanitarian space. I don't understand how UNHCR works. Like, I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm not saying that as, as like, 
incredulous. Like, I don't understand. I'm saying I literally don't know what the system is. I was going to say the exact same thing because I've been seeing a lot of ads um, for like humanitarian organizations here in the Netherlands. And they're already like fundraising for Sudan. And I don't know if that's how it works. Like they fundraise and then they plan and budget and whatever. And then they go in. But I, I need to know where this money is going because so also far there, there's speaking not of which, a single there are, person. There were ads like the UNHCR, I believe. Um, there were ads on like on Instagram and on Twitter asking for donations. Mm-hmm. But it's like, wait, don't you have country budgets? I like, don't you have budgets that you that like? And and yeah, that, I. I don't Plus. know how it works. Can we talk about the ads for a second? <laughs> this is a safe space, so I'm going to say the the ad using a Sudanese employee to beg for money to save Sudanese people rubs me the wrong way. I don't know why. Who did that? The the the, the UNHCR. Hold on, I gotta really? look it up. There is an ad, there was an ad that I saw, like a video that was like, oh, Sudan right now is going, my country is going through a war right now. And he's wearing, yeah, it was UNHCR. Uh, he's wearing mm-hmm. the vest and everything. And he's telling us about a Sudan and how things are like, um, you know, things are happening. <laughs> the war is happening and people mm-hmm. are being displaced and whatever. And we need your help. So donate. I don't know why that bothered me so much. But it bothers me so much that they used a Sudanese person to make this call. As if, first of all, we're all as a collective not going through enough. Our country literally (laughs) being at war. But also, there was, I don't know, just there's like an exploitative element to it that I hated Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. made me feel really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It's like when they use those... It's like the the image of the African child with the flies around their face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's giving I know exactly that. what you mean. It's giving yeah. that. Ma, Finhaya, you and HCR, you know how they do. I hated it. But then, like I said, it also just made me think like, wait, don't you have budgets in the, in, in the year? Don't countries donate to fund these kinds of projects? They probably <laughs> I don't, don't get it. have a big budget for that. I, I honestly, like I said, this is all very confusing to me because yeah. I know for a fact that none of these NGOs are currently working in Sudan, but they're all fundraising. And I just need someone to explain to me. Where how is this, this money going? Work. Right. Where is the money I going? You know, maybe this is how they do it. And you we know, need they receipts. need the time to like plan and whatever. But I, yeah, I need receipts for real. But um, it just feels like I said, like, yeah, I, I, I want to come back to the, the border mm-hmm. in Egypt. The fact yeah. that, you know, there are still thousands of people there waiting to be processed and no shelter, no nothing. Uh, you know, hotels, the few that are there are overbooked, right? There's nowhere to mm-hmm. stay because there's so many yeah. people there, it, either on the Sudanese side or on the on the Egyptian side, right? Once people finally do get to go through and, and mm-hmm. all the different 
weird policies that there's no like standard policy for processing these visas in the first place. So some people get in and some people don't. Some people are rejected for the same reason other people are let in. Like there's nothing concrete. There's nothing standardized. Mm -hmm. And so you're just at the mercy of whoever gets your passport or whoever you talk to, which is wild. Yeah. It's wild. And people are there with their children, with elder, elderly folks, like with sick people and people with disabilities. And I, yani, I heard it's also creating a black market in Halfa for the visas where you can pay more money and yeah. get your visa expedited. But even that doesn't work for everyone. So I don't really know. Like nobody knows what's going on. People right. are just waiting and they tell them something different every day. And that's not even counting the the struggle that people had to go through just to get to the border with the right. buses that don't have permits to cross into the border area that just drop people off in the middle of the desert. The buses that have been price gouging their tickets. I mean, insane tickets. And let us mention also, because I think in the media, people are talking about, oh, folks are fleeing to Egypt, folks are fleeing to Egypt. But we're not talking about who is going to Egypt. Right. Mm -hmm. The fact that like we were talking about before, the people who are going there are going there because they have the money to go there. Yep. These are people with relative means. They're not just mm -hmm. anybody. Not anybody is getting on a bus. And there are mm -hmm. millions of people who are still trapped in Khartoum and elsewhere. But key, key word being relative. <laughs> right. Relative. Oh, yeah. I'm saying relative. Right. <laughs> relative to to the other <laughs> parts of the population that don't have it. Right. And some people have sold everything they have to get to this yeah. area only to be, you know, either dropped off in the middle of the desert or surprised by the visa fees that they don't have, or mm -hmm. you have to figure out how they're going to live if they do get a visa. Like, it's just, it's and such a mess. That's the thing. I feel like people on social media um, have the impression that everyone has deserted Khartoum, but Khartoum yeah. is a really big city of it's around... Huge. Six or seven million. I feel like it's, and I I feel think, like it's ten. I, I'm sure the bigger Khartoum, like Bawahi and stuff, is yeah. probably up to 10 million. Um, like, not everyone is going to leave. No. 99% of people cannot leave. Right. And the fighting is still going on. So Right. That's on the Egyptian end. On the Ethiopian end... <laughs> The Ethiopian said, uh, if you have dual citizenship, we will allow you to come in. If you have residence visa somewhere else or a travel visa to somewhere else, we will let you in. Otherwise, if you are a Sudanese national with no dual citizenship and none of those other criteria, sorry. And nowhere to go, you're not coming here? Yeah. And nowhere yeah. to go, you are not coming here. Which is wild now let's talk about why it's wild it's wild because people are fleeing a war and what the hell but i think people are taking it in a different direction the wildness and i'm not with it mm -hmm. a lot of people obviously have been rightfully angry you know why is ethiopia why do this mm -hmm. particularly since there are so many ethiopian refugees in sudan and sudan mm -hmm. has long been a safe haven for ethiopian and Eritrean refugees. Uh, mm -hmm. However, obviously, there's always a little, uh, a little alt-right <laughs> <laughs> hint to the to the discussion. 
oh, we should close the borders. No more Ethiopian refugees. No more Ethiopians allowed inside Sudan after the war is over. Calm down. First of all, Ethiopians are leaving Ethiopia because of the Ethiopian government. Like, they're not leaving just for shits and giggles. So what you're saying, people and governments are not the same, right? People and governments are not the same. Uh, I think we're living proof, Yali. If you can't thank you. That's what I'm that, saying. Like, then I don't know what to tell you. Do you can they take a look inwards? <laughs> take a look at where you right. are right now. Exactly. You are living proof <laughs> of the fact that people and governments are not the same. So let's not, let's stop the whole... That's not the answer. That's not the answer. Your problem is not with the Ethiopian people. It is with the Ethiopian government. There's that. Uh, on the Western Front, um, Chad closed its borders, I think, on April 17th. On April 17th, they said, ah, <laughs> that's enough of that. But I do believe that refugees are still allowed um, allowed. Uh, to, to enter Chad through the border. So that's, that. I mean, that's that's happening. I know for a fact that's happening because I think okay. some 30,000 refugees from uh, Darfur yeah. have entered Chad in the last, yeah. you know, few weeks. South Sudan, I mean, standing ovation to the people of South Sudan and the government of South yep. Sudan for its unwavering support because, first of all... <laughs> I mean, I feel like we don't deserve it as as a as a nation, as an institution. Right. I feel la, like we la, don't la, deserve la. it. Yeah. No, no, no. no. <laughs> but despite that, are we going to get into that? I don't know if we should. Get I mean, into I just that. No. I'm just going to say, but we that, do not deserve it. Yeah, I, 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 like I said, as an as a as a nation state, we don't deserve it. As a people, uh, some of us do, and some of us don't. But mm. as a nation state. We a lot don't, of us don't. Still. A lot of us don't. As a nation state, we don't deserve it. Uh, but South Sudan has been really accommodating to Sudanese people. No visas required. No nothing. You just come in through the border. Obviously, rightfully so, because you are a refugee. And um, also, before we talk about their government, can we talk about the one girl organizing evacuations? Yes. Shout out to her for for for. I mean, like I said, much like what people in Sudan are doing just regular civilians getting together and organizing to help people in the same way. I, I believe the effort was started by just regular civilians in South Sudan right? who came together to cre create a committee to help people evacuate um, from, from, from Khartoum and, and elsewhere. And I think, I feel like, uh, I don't want to misquote the stats, but it's thousands of people. Thousands of people have been evacuated, mm -hmm. and the 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 special thing about their their effort is that I believe they're not taking money for it. So for South Sudanese who want to return to South Sudan, I mean, to, yeah, to South Sudan from Khartoum, they're organizing mm -hmm. buses, trucks, whatever transportation from Khartoum oh, wow. all the way to the border. Yeah, which is incredible. Right? Amazing, and their own obviously their private sector is contributing in this, and at the border, uh, UNHCR is there, and other humanitarian organizations are there to help. I mean, it's still dire circumstances at at the border, but but at least there's some sort of mm -hmm. aid um, that right. people are met with. But I mean, I just wanted to highlight the um, the what you call it. 
I just wanted to highlight the fact that like they have been the most accommodating in all of this and the most understanding of what's going on and the most yeah. welcoming of Sudanese refugees um in 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 all of this. Uh let that be a lesson to us. Let that be I inshallah we build on that. Because I feel like our our relationship with South Sudan is still it's still um non-existent. It's well lie, we're not gonna gonna get into this right well, now, but no. I personally believe that people Yeah, I mean, not just specifically South Sudan, but oppressed people deserve reparations. Inshallah, by millions. Oh yeah. So that's that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's that's a whole other that. that's a whole other topic that we can get into later. But I just I mean, like on a on a on a on a human level, on a social level, forget a political one. On a social level, I feel like there's a non-existent relationship. Between, but I was thinking that reparations they are also social. Like they need to be. Oh yeah, there's a reconciliation that needs to happen. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, but in fact, we're not responsible for it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the mubadala has to come from us. Yeah, from us. Yeah. 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 Anyway. I feel like that was a pretty thorough answer to question number yeah. one. Of eight. And I want to say that we didn't even cover everything. I mean, there's a, it's impossible to cover everything. Do you want to? Actually, there is one thing that I think we should really get into. Um, and it's the intentional destruction of everything. Yes. Of the entire capital. Yeah. Um, <sighs> Yeah, I mean, like I said, beyond the airstrikes by the military, um, there's there is a concerned effort, a systematic effort by the RSF, by Ginguida, Damasaria, whatever you want to call them, uh, to actively destroy uh, institutions, public destroy. institutions. <laughs> destroy, burn, use, yeah. um which might be new for people in Khartoum, but it is the MO they've always had in Darfur. Yep. Um, which is basically... And still. To... And still. I mean, and oh, yeah. yeah, and, and they're still, still yeah. doing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is basically to create as much uh, damage and destruction as possible in as little time as possible. And that is how the RSF was created and that's how they're trained. Um, it's based basically a, what do you call it? Um, Scorched earth tactics. Well, that, because <laughs> it's um, for quote unquote counter insurrection. Counter, what do you mean? I don't understand how, I don't understand the 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 concept itself. Because. <laughs> Is it supposed to like. When, make sure you know, uh? when the Jinjoweed were, were not created, but like armed mm. basically by the, um, the old regime, their main objective was to enter villages in. 
therefore, and uh, what do you say? Like nip the rebellion at the bud, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so make sure that there's nobody there that's like part of basically the rebel movement. Yeah, so just extreme destruction. Right. And that's exactly what they're doing, Khartoum, because, um, and shout out to whoever made a list on Twitter, but some guy um, compiled all the buildings that the RSF destroyed, burned, looted, and that includes most banks in Khartoum at this point, yeah. um, like Bank al-Khartoum, Bank al-Mal, um, all of the markets, like Subahri, Saad Bishra, um a few uh factories indomi um what else and we have it was like 45 factory yeah. yeah it was like a good 45 buildings that he had listed and people just kept adding on to that in the comments mm. so i don't know how many there are at the moment um but also universities research yeah. centers hospitals hospitals I'm extremely confused about. I really the do think a part of because it because what is, is there to steal? But there's it's not about mm-hmm. the stealing to me. To me, it's about a message being sent to the Sudanese people mm-hmm. that like matani. I feel like they're trying to destroy everything, uh, everything that is a symbol of of. Of al-Balad, right? Mm-hmm. A symbol of us as a nation. That's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And and I and and like some people have made the argument that oh, you know, this is this is like Hemeti's revenge for uh, all of the years of marginalization or whatever. But mm-hmm. I just think that it's 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 it, it it's on a more basic level than that. It's just that would make sense. Like your, when you see these symbols of your city or your country be destroyed, it that has a powerful effect on your psyche. It destroys your spirit. It kills it. Yeah. And I think to me that's like part of the psychological warfare of you we don't want you to yani, we don't want there to be any spirit left we just want to roll yeah. in and take over and that's it and and nobody puts up a fight and you you can't put up a fight because everything that you know is gone right and i feel like a lot of people are underestimating the the intentionality behind that I think they just think that this is chaos and they're just fighting chaotically, but I really don't oh, think no, there's I don't think a deliberate so. aspect to it. And on I the think so too. Sudanese Because when, end, when you burn a building where it's just literally what that scientific research. Yeah. Yeah, and you're going beyond the you know, physical and financial destruction. Yeah. It's really you want people to lose any knowledge yep. they've accumulated over the years just yep. burn it all and wow, to me like i said on, okay. on the military on the military's end i really do believe that they're so used to 
fighting wars in which uh, the destruction doesn't matter and the mm -hmm. loss of human life doesn't matter, that that's the only way they know how to fight. And so now that's why they're using uh, fighter jets in Khartoum mm -hmm. to bomb residential areas. They could mm -hmm. be on the ground fighting an on-the-ground war with these on-the-ground people because they don't have, the RSF doesn't have planes, right? It has yeah. anti-aircraft anti guns, yeah. but they don't have planes. <laughs> so instead of getting on the ground and fighting them on the ground where they are, you're shooting them from the sky because even if you kill who, however, whoever with them, it doesn't matter because you've been taught and told and practiced over so many years this kind of widespread destruction and it never mattered mm -hmm. so you're not even you don't even know how to fight a war in which you preserve civilian life so either way they're you know either way they're against the sudanese people a lot right. of people have been making the argument that like no we should support the military because the, <sighs> we'll get into that <laughs> the artists of our rebels <laughs> a whole question right well so anyway well, i'll keep that for that the the um, I wanted to say something. I think we covered. Yeah, I, like I said, we 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 can't cover everything. I think there's so much destruction that has happened over the last 27 days, and so many facets of life that have been severely impacted by this conflict mm -hmm. that it can't be covered here. <laughs> and our minds, yeah. sarahatan, cannot uh, don't have the capacity right now to be organized enough or methodical enough to go through every single facet or remember every single facet because we're right. also overcome with uh, emotion and overwhelm at mm -hmm. what's happening because we're literally living it. Um, well, living it as in, as in, as in we're both outside of Sudan, but we're, we have family members, relatives, friends, who are for Sudan, who are, we're actively worrying about, despite, I mean, besides the, the greater Belid and the greater population. Right. So, and we, that's, that's, that's just the disclaimer <laughs> I wanted to give. You know, we're not going to cover everything okay. today. Yeah, definitely. So I'm going to skip a few questions, but okay. one of my questions was, uh, who is winning? <laughs> I can tell you who's losing, the Sudanese people. <laughs> There's that. That's it. That's the answer to the question. The question isn't who's winning, it's who's losing. And the loser is the Sudanese people, unfortunately. There's, I mean, there's no winner here. Even, even if we say Fair. that there was, even if we say that what they're battling and who cares how many people die and who cares how many things are destroyed, I, who's going to win? From I, honestly, what are they winning? I honestly, yeah, what, what? What what? <laughs> yeah, I mean ashes. <laughs> Literally. Anyway, um, I I really believe in my heart of hearts that these people, both of them, Himethi um, Al Burhan, they both believe that they can still have a military win, and it really baffles me because yeah. I'm not a war expert, but looking at what's happening and what they both have like how they're armed and who has more money and who has more means and who has no one can really win no for a while yeah 
So I think it's going to be a battle of who has um, better aid from neighboring countries. From outside. Mm-hmm. And who's just going to survive in the long run. It is, uh, to me, uh, it's definitely going to be a war of stamina more than uh, anything. But at the end, like I said, what are they winning? Like you said, they're winning ashes. They've completely destroyed the one, um, the one city in the country that had any sort of regasha, any sort of potential to it. <laughs> they destroyed the capital, which which is where everything is located. Unfortunately, yeah, because we we didn't even talk about how the past thirty years, probably more. I don't know about the other regimes like in Shukranida. There has been, like, everything is really extremely centralized in Khartoum. Yeah. Life in Sudan is centralized in Khartoum. Government, I mean, even before the last 30 years, because I, I was talking to Umi yesterday about about this, and she was saying how, like, when they were young, they have to go to Khartoum. Mm-hmm. You need healthcare, you go to Khartoum. You need, uh, you want to uh, go to a secondary education, um, uh, um, college, you go to Khartoum. Right. Work, you go to Khartoum. Right. Like, and and that only got worse over the last 30 years, right? It's only gotten even worse over the last 30 years. Anybody who wants yeah. to make anything out of themselves in life, who wants any sort of opportunity, has to come to Khartoum. There's no other choice because. The last 30 years, everything has been so centralized and so uh, focused on Khartoum at the cost and detriment of the rest of the country that that's why Khartoum is such a massive city because mm-hmm. it's the only place where anybody can get any sort of access to anything. Mm-hmm. So you destroy this central place where the government lives and everything, power is here. You destroyed it. How are you going to move forward after that? Is there a plan? <laughs> I doubt. I doubt there's a plan. I don't think there is. I think it's absolute chaos, really. They're so focused on winning. They don't even know what they're doing. But but no one can win because, like I said, the RSF being an, like a counter-insurgency, that's the word. Mm. <laughs> Not the French word. And Wahim, they're main um skills if that is are that they're mobile in cities mm-hmm. but the army has planes and helicopters and tankers and stuff but also the army which i think now is it a time to um remind you that they did have um 80 of <laughs> the state budget for i don't know how many yeah. years yeah <laughs> Most of it goes to their leadership because they're not well-trained or well-equipped. Yeah. So, yeah, there is, I don't... There is no winning. <laughs> I don't think either. So Unfortunately, there is no winning. And there clearly is no plan for what's to come after the dust settles. And it's just... I mean, the Sudanese people deserve better. We just deserve better. It's exhausting. It's exhausting to have leader after leader after leader be just 
the most selfish people to come out of this population. It's so strange to me. Not just selfish, man. He's selfishness with Belada. Yes. I think there's also a problem of not having any kind of vision. Any yeah, no foresight. Because what what are you fighting for? What what are you what's going to be left? It's so interesting <laughs> that the wild, same wild. people I mean the same population that came up with the resistance committees and is doing all of this on the ground and and all of this mobilization locally and internationally is also the same population that produced these two idiots. Urubban Abtalana with idiot after idiot getting to the top. I don't, I don't get it. I don't see the larger lesson, Lord. I am trying, but I don't see it. I just, yeah, our history has been so uh, contradictory. Values and the, the, yeah, the values of us as a people mm-hmm. and the values and actions of our leadership don't go together. Yeah. They're polar opposites. So either we're deluded. We might be, you know. Or they're just, we might be online. We might be. Yes. Who do the people support and why? I read the little description under this the question. Uh, who do the people support? <laughs> Nobody. I mean, I think a large portion of the people support no one mm-hmm. and are just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to survive. I think Sudan has seen the worst from both the military and Adama City and the RSF. Mm-hmm. And so it's impossible to support a side. In this. So here's the thing. I know people in Sudan who support the army. And I think um, part of it is being completely terrorized by the RSF. Mm-hmm. Um, who are doing the looting and, and the raiding until of now, homes and all yeah, of that. They're, yeah. they're the ones who are raiding the homes. They're terrorizing people at checkpoints. Mm-hmm. Um, they're you know looting and stealing everything and I think also people feel like the army being a legitimate institution right. I think would they think would be easier to reform than the RSF which is basically the Dewey. Um sure you know why not I'm not going to judge what anyone living in the war um, no. thinks or who they support. However, people outside of Sudan. <laughs> Yo, the diaspora has been wilding. I mean, we've been doing great things, but we've also been talking out of the side of our mouths, saying just absolute nonsense. And it's exhausting. We, many of us, <laughs> are thinking about this war in theoretical terms. Mm-hmm. This and, is this is not a drill, people. Right, it's not. not a it's drill. not a. It's not at It's not Call of Duty. This is real life happening to real people. Um, 
I'm really struggling to understand how you can be sitting on your couch in Riyadh or in New York. Or, you know, elsewhere. Um, and saying like, Yeah, I don't. I I think it's I think extremely confusing. This to me. is happening. Uh, yeah, 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 part of the people who believe that we have to support the military because the military is a legitimate institution, which I can understand. If you completely disregard the history of the military institution in Sudan, I think, yeah, it requires uh, some some extreme cognitive dissonance to see the, the military as a savior right now is to also disregard the history of of what they've done not just uh across the 30 years but just in the last four <laughs> just in the last four but i i think because also of sudan's history and that entire wikipedia page um <laughs> i think a lot of people think that these are our only two options that it's either Yeah. The SAF or a Jinjaweed. Yeah. And they're like, oh, well, in that case, you know, <laughs> Ekid, <That's true. laughs> not them. Right. Um, but also, I don't understand. Like, I think don't, people do. Do I not have you. family in Sudan? Well, yeah, there's What that. I've, I mean, I've asked this question over the years a lot on this podcast. Do you have في السودان ما عندكم اهل في الخرطوم او برا الخرطوم ما ما تعرفوا ناس هناك like that you care about or that you talk to because a lot of the I'm times I'm extremely confused because honestly I don't think people outside of Khartoum realize that I think this situation is really beyond what is bearable for anyone yeah. let alone for a city of almost 10 million that was on the verge of collapse Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the same profoundly. It's the same um it's the same type of uh dissonance or disconnect or blindness that that has had us talking in the past about well why don't people see Masalan the suffering in Khartoum itself? Uh, that you support financially I, I think there's there's a disconnect in the diaspora we tend to talk about Sudan in Khartoum terms and also mm-hmm. in also very theoretical terms of what mm-hmm. should happen as opposed to what mm-hmm. can happen there are certain things that cannot happen mm-hmm. <laughs> based on where the what the situation is And also the the people who are supporting the the army, are you not seeing all of this 
destruction that's happening يعني احنا الليله لو الحرب دي وقفت if they stop it right now just to get back to where Khartoum was on April 14th which, which was not was that still great to be awful. honest yeah it would i'm sure it will take years yeah. and how like in this collapsing economy how with is what that, exactly with, with what, what? yeah yeah i mean i'm so confused how, how, how is theoretical it, yeah how is supporting the army supposedly the patriotic choice but then you don't want the war to stop and you're looking at all this destruction and what that's like that's fine for the patriot that you are I'm so i think you. that people think this is justified what how the military is handling this how? is justified how how I don't know. In what, in what, well, in there what has to be a disconnect for you to even be able universe. to see what's happening and think, yeah. Not only It's think, yes, I have support, but also think, yeah, keep going. There has to be a disconnect. But then you, you have to think, they are humar Allah, because you really believe in your heart of hearts that your life is, at the end of the day, just collateral damage. Yeah. It, well, it's not your home, life, no. not their life specifically. But the lives of everybody yeah. back there. Yeah. Yeah. In collateral damage, we're normal. We can live our lives like this and die like our lives have no value. Yeah. And yeah. that's it's, just... It's disappointing. It's disappointing, but I think it also is a lack of imagination, yes, Adam. We can't, yeah. uh, can't, we can't imagine a world in which we're not governed by one of these two. Yeah. Everybody's so worried about taking over or Hemeti taking over that they'll accept anything from the military because they see the military as the ones who are going to end right. this. Not realizing that the military, I mean, I don't know how you can't not realize that because, because it happened. It happened already. How? It how? happened already from them. They <laughs> لما كانوا بيعملوا فينا سبعة وزي متى ما تغيروا نهائي هم ذاتهم نفس الناس فما ممكن تيجي هالسع تقول لي الدعم السريع كان جزء اللي هو كان جزء هسي يوم 14 كان جزء من الجيش هسي بيقوا هم كعبين كل الكعوبية والجيش because you hear this argument a lot الجيش will deal with them after زي ما we like dealt with them أي في ألف والله العظيم بقول كلام ده ماذا تعلم we dealt with them في ألفين وتسعتاشر أيش أيش حين قال قال أيش حين خليهم كده ينتهوا لنا من ديل إحنا بعدك بنعرف نتصرف معهم عرفنا نتصرف معهم كيف الثورة ما شالوها كان عندنا حكومة قبل يوم 14 كان عندنا حكومة period حكومة عسكرية حكومة مدنية كان في حكومة أصلا was there even a government forget what kind of government it was on April 14th for you to tell me we'll be able to deal with the military when the time comes I feel like people forget that this army has never ever fought anyone other than the Sudanese people never In never. different parts of Sudan. Never ever in their lives. Since That's independence. That's why they're not trained. Never. To get rid of a Jinjaweed. I think that's important. The 
It's so you know bizarre. Just, it's so bizarre. I, the disconnect I, I is so bizarre. And again, it, I think it has a lot to do with our 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 uh, self-centeredness, I think, as people, particularly mm-hmm. those of us who are not from marginalized areas, to be able to fix our mouths and say, I guess yes, Sudan, when a Sudanian in the country saw the best work of it's so what fihum. How can you fix your mouth to say that? When there are people Sudanian fil Balad Matu Matu Aliya the Gesh Be Absha al Atruk. You wanna ignore all of that because it, it wasn't, you know, Gidambe, like it wasn't in Khartoum, it was, you know, far and unknown and we didn't know and whatever. Hasi a dish I'm so confused. I'm so confused. Please explain. And people say, oh, you know, it's war. It's war. That's, that's not my job. I am not a military expert, but I am sure that if they had wanted to, there are things that could be done to protect civilians as people do everywhere and as your army is supposed to do for you. I'm not interested. Why isn't this ground? I'm like, I'm so, so, so over this whole conversation. Oh my God. Oh, it's wild. It's wild and it's exhausting. And I really worry in the eventuality that a dish actually wins, uh, what they're going to, what fresh hell they're going to bring. Lest we forget that we were 30 years old from the government. The government was not the government. Are you guys the government was 30 years old. It's a lack of imagination because people probably think that if or whatever, and that's probably better than a gingerly. But then... Is it? But but people were saying right. First of all, is it? I feel like it's pretty equal, but it's absolutely it's absolutely equal. But also, people were saying that after the revolution, when things yeah. were tough, people were saying al Bashir. Yeah, which is such a slap in the face. But whatever. Uh, right. I just want people, particularly those of us who are outside of Sudan. Please go read about your history and the history of the Sudanese military before you fix your mouth to say anything because they are very, very similar, if not the same. They've practiced the same tactics. They've done the same crimes. They're the same. And if you don't want to support them because you feel that whatever they did before has nothing to do with you and that wasn't your people and you don't care about these people, that's fine. Say like, that. Please, right. Then away. say that. 
just say I don't care yeah, about those. Just say people. you're racist. It's fine. <laughs> just say you're tribalist. Who cares? Um. Okay, let's move on to. Um, what is the Sudanese civil society doing? What are they? Not Namely, doing? the resistance committee. What are, what are they, they not, not doing? doing? Bidget, bidget. They are filling in the space for the government. The entire government. Uh, all of it. Any and all NGOs. <laughs> yep. I mean, uh, uh, everything. Yeah, I mean, they're doing everything. What are they not doing? They're helping with evacuations. They're helping with aid. They're helping with health care. They're helping with disposing of the bodies that litter the streets. They're helping with fixing electricity and um, and uh, water and all of these other basic services. They're helping with everything. Besides also yeah. being uh, explaining to people at length the media or whoever was going on for Sudan and being spokespeople for what's happening in the country. They're doing it all. They're doing it all in the right. absence of everybody. Right. Um, let's move on to how we I, can help. I feel like, okay. I feel like, yeah, I feel like we've, <laughs> there's a lot that we've talked about and it's time to talk about how we can help. First of all, uh, mm-hmm. I think we need to not underestimate the power of the internet and sharing mm-hmm. the information. Just in terms of, I won't even talk about what it is to the greater cause. I'll just talk about what it is to people who are in need or people who are missing. Some people who have been missing um, have been found and returned to their families safe and sound because of their the internet, because of the exposure online that they got, that their cases got. Only because right. of that. Yeah. So don't underestimate the power of a share, a retweet, a repost, a video or whatever. Um uh, that's that's the the very least in my opinion that you can do is to just share. Um then there's also things like donating and there's plenty of uh fundraisers speaking of which so the Americans decided to impose sanctions heavy air mm-hmm. quotes on the sanctions. I saw. And of course immediately <laughs> That meant shutting down the fundraisers. So all yeah. the GoFundMe's that have Sudan written on them, their mm-hmm. funds have been either stripped or <laughs> frozen because of sanctions. The same sanctions that were supposed to stop the generals. That's being handled right now. But donating is very important because, I mean... Besides the medicine, supplies, this money is also going towards uh, like families, directly to families that desperately need this help. People who are starving, literally starving without this help. Um, there's an extreme food shortage. And like dying of thirst. People have not had running water right. in God knows how long. No water, no food. No electricity. 
Um, and, and, and there are people, pl- millions of people in Khartoum and elsewhere who live day to day, right? And nobody is working. There's no work. There's no income. So, I, I mean, obviously, uh, these fundraisers will not be able to support every single person going through this. But just one family is is better than nothing, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So donating to fundraisers that specifically help families to make it through this crisis, very important. Um, here, okay, I have a question. And I let me know what you think, because my view is very bleak of this. Do we do we think that writing your representatives of government does anything? I know that in the U.S. as <laughs> good, but but I mean, does does writing uh, your local MP, your local whatever representative, does it I mean, do anything? It, it depends, like to do what. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, is is it going to change anything for people? in Sudan I highly doubt it I don't know mm. if that's just mm-hmm. nice um but for people who manage to leave um then I think there's a lot to be done whether with like refugee organizations or um to like get your country to accept more refugees give them more help mm-hmm. have like we were saying for the ukrainians you have to like really advocate for a family scheme if that's a possibility um so there's that but is it going to help inside sudan i really right. do not know because also i forgot to talk about this earlier but when we were talking about the evacuations and like the people who sent military planes and stuff Um, Joe Biden and Fadia, ممكن يشرحوا لي ليه؟ يا ساي جم دلدلينجين الحين على قولهم. يعني why are you coming with nothing? You could have you could have sent aid. You could have sent aid. Asked the Sudanese doctors who were literally begging online for people to donate blood bags. Literally. Just, just the bags, the bag. not the blood. They couldn't even the bags. get blood from people because there were no bags. Anything, just anything. Medical supplies. Yeah, uh, that's... Just... <laughs> like, anything. Wild, wild. Is so it that's bad that saying, I didn't expect I don't know if to bring anything? People... Yeah. I, I didn't. I really am not surprised. So that's why I'm saying I don't know if you can really bully your MP into actually caring about the people of Sudan. But if enough um, Sudanese people, like dual nationals and stuff, basically a group who votes, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, then, yeah, you can maybe advocate to make your city or town or whatever a more, like a less hostile environment for Sudanese people coming in. Yeah. That's a good idea. Mm. Any other ways that people can help from abroad? I'm trying to think. I mean, at this point, I think donating is the best Mm. option. Yeah. Just because Um. it allows for people to do work on the ground that is desperately needed. Like it allows for people to do stuff. Yeah. Accomplish yeah. things on the ground. 
I think that's what's most needed right now. Um, yeah. Just money in all these uh, verified fundraisers. Um, there's also the small stuff you can do, like, um, every once in a while it works, but like, um, sending phone credit or an ethan, like we tried to do, um, that worked for some people, but not for others. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and also support your local Sudanese community because they are going through it. Support your local Sudanese community. Yeah. I mean... (laughs) look yeah. for them somewhere figure out where they hang out and go there <laughs> it's really bad out here people are emotionally distraught by this because even though they're not directly affected they still have you know friends and family and all sorts of people back there and a special a special i guess a special request to employers Mm-hmm. To, I mean, I don't know who's going to be listening to this, but like, please uh, understand what hire your Sudanese, Sudanese employees people. one hire Sudanese people, but also please understand what your Sudanese employees are going through right now. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, uh, there needs to be some sort of allowance <laughs> for it. Yeah, some sort of allowance for for them that I would just I mean the mental toll on them right now is is indescribable yeah ah, i'm exhausted um, anything else that we want to say yeah, can we move on to Vietnam? yes i have two you want to go first mm-hmm. i mean always and forever always and forever um, and this is not to like romanticize these committees because I understand that if we actually have hope for a democratic transition at one point, um, yeah, I mean, it's important that they stay criticizable. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. we, we can't sanctify them. But honestly, the work that these people have been doing is nothing short of extraordinary. Um, Really holding up what's left of the country with their bare sweat and blood. Um, So yeah, there's that. Also, I did want to shout out the South Sudanese girl who helped organize some of the evacuations. I believe her name is Adieu Majok. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, I was going to shout her out. That was one of mine. So go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi to Bidjid Bidjid. Shout out to her. She has shown nothing but support and empathy. Empathy. I can't talk. To the Sudanese people. And she's done um, a lot of great work to evacuate South Sudanese people from Khartoum and other people. Um, I'm going to, we're also going to share her. They have a fundraiser to yeah. help support um, the continued evacuation of people from Sudan, as well as, I believe, to support the people who are at the border. Um, so we'll, we'll share that. I, she's doing she's doing incredible work with her committee. Um, I'm reading now on her timeline that uh, more than 52,000 people have arrived 
fleeing the clashes in Sudan. And I know that at least 10,000 of those were evacuated by her committee. Yeah. So it's pretty incredible work uh, yeah. that they're doing over there. Um, my other yes, sir, yes, ma'am. It, oh, sorry. Did you have another one? I did, but maybe it's the same. Gooey. My yes, sir, yes, ma'am is uh, to Safwa Muhammad, who wrote, uh, who did an interview with Sharhabil today. Iconic Sudanese legend, uh, multidisciplinary artist, jazz uh, pioneer, um, Sharhabil Ahmed. Uh, They did an interview with him that came out today on GQ Middle East. And it's so wonderful. I mean, the interview itself is wonderful. But the pictures. I haven't seen it. Oh my God, Sarah, the pictures of Sharhabil. In the in central Khartoum, this happened before. They did the interview before this broke out, mm-hmm. and uh, he's like, they took pictures in um, what's that place called? Fishar Ajamuri is the cafe. Uh, um, the cafe. Greek one. Aywa. You see it You see it this my, I don't know. Why am I forgetting the name? Papa Costa. Papa Costa. They did. They they did like a photo shoot. Fishar Ajamuri, and then. Uh, part of it in Papa Costa, and it's so. The pictures are wild. The team is the, the um, Chara Bordo uh, to uh, Hashim Nasr, who is a photographer. <laughs> My God, he looks incredible. They're so cute. He's got all types of guitars in the photos. He's oh. wearing a suit and just yeah, and he's stunting in the middle of Chara Jamhuria. He Sana. looks so good. I loved it. I loved every single part of it. It's exactly what we needed. At this point in time. Okay. Shout out to Yusufa for writing the article. Shout out to the whole team um, for the the artistic vision behind the photos. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Shout out to Sir Habil for being the icon that he is. That's my yes or yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Was that that wasn't yours? No, it wasn't mine because I had no idea. Um my ambiguous yes serious ma'am goes out to dialectic films which is a media production social enterprise based in khatoum and i believe it was yesterday that they released mm-hmm. was it yesterday yeah it was they released a series of five short films from uh their story camp 22 yes 22 um, which is basically a training program mm. for young people who grew up in IDP camps in Sudan. Yes. Um, and who were trained to make like creative documentaries, I guess. Yeah. And so there's five short films uh, that basically explore these young people's lives um, in and around these camps and just, growing up in the shadow of war, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, they are really, uh, they're touching. Like they're, yeah. it's, it's, it's a really nice series to watch. And I think it's really important for us right now because the people of that war have been displaced for 20 years. And I think, this is a really good time to go and explore that history if you don't know about it. 
Um, Agreed. And yeah, that's, uh, I guess that's it. That reminded me of one last yes or yes ma'am I have that is goes very well with what you just said. It mm-hmm. is to uh, Sudanese director Mohamed Kordofani and the entire team behind the film Goodbye Julia, Wada'an Julia, which mm-hmm. is the first Sudanese feature film to be an official selection of the Cannes Film Festival. And the film is about, is about basically, uh, it discusses the, uh, independence of South Sudan, secession from Sudan, uh, through the lens of two characters, one North Sudanese, one South Sudanese. And mm-hmm. it's the trailer, intense. The cinematography, intense. I cannot wait for this film to be available for the rest of us. <laughs> the because mm-hmm. <laughs> it looks so good. Shout out to Mohamed Kurdufani for all the work mm-hmm. that he's done over the years. I love his um I love his work. And I'm so happy for the entire team. And the trailer is available um on uh, deadline.com. And also, I believe on YouTube, it should be available on YouTube. Um, shout out to them. Thank you for giving us a little glimmer of Kida. And I believe this film is also important to watch. If you don't know about the history of your country and uh, our, uh, our, <laughs> our, our um, what is it? Our complicated relationship uh, between between our communities, between our different mm-hmm. tribes in Sudan, specifically between North and South Sudanese. Um, but yeah, that's that's it. That's what I wanted to say. Cool. I think we're done. Kafana. Kafana, Shadid. I hope if we record again soon that it will be for some good news. I don't know how, but... Um, I agree. Inshallah, because we are tired. As a people. Tired, <laughs> exhausted, muntahin, khalas, ma'indanam, khalas. Ki kimlet, alfina kimlet, kimlet. I hope all of you can check on your people in Sudan. Allah yitamminkum kullakum. Amin. And take care of each other. Yes. Hold each other Bye. close. Bye.